Welcome to Brews Rock. We're Chuck Mountain, a band nestled in the beautiful beer country of North Carolina. Each week, we pick brewers' minds about their brewing philosophy and pick up tricks to bring new life to your home brew. We played at countless breweries and decided it was about time to learn how to craft our own. Rock, where we talk to the rock stars of the brewing world and drink their delicious creations. Today we're coming at you from Joymonger's Brewing in Greensboro, North Carolina, where we had the pleasure of chatting with our head brewer, Jordan Miller. He gave us the inside scoop on how he went from folding boxes at Natty Greens to running the show here at Joymonger's. And trust us, the journey was wilder than a fermented IPA. We also talked about the similarities between yeast and cattle farming and how growing your own ingredients is the ultimate flex in the brewing world. And let's not forget, we discovered Jordan's favorite beer to brew, which he calls Crispy Boys. You're going to have to listen to find out what that means. So sit back, crack cocoa in a cold one, and join us for another episode of Brews Rock. So do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I am Jordan Miller. I'm the head brewer of Joymonger's Brewing in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I have been brewing now for about five years, been in the industry about seven, going on eight, actually. I started at Natty Greens when it was on what is now Gate City Boulevard. And I started my first day building cardboard boxes. <laughs> so what everyone dreams about when they dream about getting into craft brewing. Yeah. So putting together the boxes. Yeah. Exactly. It's a very standard sort of progression that probably 40 or 50 people in the brewing industry have gone through at Natty Greens. Start out making boxes, then you graduate to like the packaging line, and then you go into the cellar, and then you go into the brew house, and then you go somewhere else. Very typical for this area. I went through the brewing science program at Rocky End Community College when that was still a thing. Um, I got my AAS, Associates of Applied Sciences, and I turned a two-year degree into like a four-year degree working at the same time. How did you start working here at Joymuggers? So Mike Rowlinson was the head of operations over at Natty's, and he struck out on his own and got partners to start this place. And like restaurants or, you know, cooks and things like that, you poach talent. Mm -hmm. So I was in the cellar over there. We went out to lunch one day and he said, hey, I'm starting this new project. You want to come along? That was uh, how that started. The first time I was in this building, there were no walls. The most important question for me was already answered, though, because the floors were pitched toward the drains, which if you talk to other people who came up in other breweries, that's incredibly important because at other breweries, sometimes they go into spaces that are not purpose built for brewing. So. You have totally flat floors with trench drains in them, which means you spend a lot of time squeegeeing. Squeegeeing. Yeah, we've we heard see that a, a couple lot of times. Yeah, <laughs> we, we see a lot of the twos. squeegee action. Yeah. So I walked in. It didn't even have walls yet. I looked at the drains and they pitched. And I thought, you know what? 
this is going to be great. This is, <laughs> uh, it, it was all about dreams for me. There you so what were you hired on at? Oh, Mike was the head brewer at the time and myself and another person were hired as assistant brewers. And there isn't really hard definitions of a position. You know, an assistant brewer here is not the same as an assistant brewer somewhere else. You know, a lot of people say brewmaster or head brewer. So myself and my counterpart, her name was Christina. We both worked in the cellar and basically everything except for brewing at that point. And then over the years, our positions shifted, staff left, staff came in, and I ended up on the platform. Here we are. We've had a lot of beers here because we've played here a lot. <laughs> and uh, my favorites are always the super spicy beers, yeah. like because you don't see them anywhere else. We haven't had for a while. I know. I've been waiting. I'm always a ghost like, pepper pale ale was yeah, very There was tasty. a ghost pepper um, pale that was pretty good. So nasty. ghost peppers, they're not in season currently. But sourcing any sort of niche product is always an issue. I'm growing ghost peppers this year. It doesn't take much. Two Carolina Reaper peppers, it's more than enough for 15 gallons of beer. Oh, wow. You just put it in there for a day and then you pull yeah. it out and then it's just like, whoa, that's almost too much. Wait, that's really all you do? Yeah. Put it in the keg, leave it for one day, and then I take it out. The nice thing about only using that much is you still get the burn from it, but it's not overwhelming and you get to taste there's this really tropical fruitiness of the super hot peppers. Did you have to experiment with that a lot? Or did Luckily, lightning struck and it was just like, well, let's start with a little bit and a little bit was enough. So when you put it in a keg, then you put the pepper in or do you? So that keg behind you, this is an audio podcast <laughs> that has a little opening on the top. I can put stuff in there and then I rack it off into that keg. So I can do one keg at a time of anything really. So yeah. is this similar to like a Randall? So you just like run it through it? No, not quite. You're literally just, I, I have like a little nylon bag uh -huh. and I can put cacao nibs or I can put cucumbers or whatever in there. I just put that in there. I pressurize it and then I rack it back into a, a keg after that. So it's not really, it's just sort of sitting in it. Gotcha. It's not running through it. Mm -hmm. Same sort of principle though. Yeah. You're infusing it. What is your strategy when it comes to the types of beers you make? Are there standards you try to stick to? Do you like to experiment more? What's your yes. philosophy around that? <laughs> um, it's trying to find a balance and, you know, it's sort of looking at what the market wants and also sort of driving people toward, oh, you like an amber ale. Have you ever tried an alt beer? Have you ever tried an ESB? And then it's just, I'm happy with this. I want to stay in this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that, but there are hundreds of styles of beer from all over the world. And, you know, if you want to have four beers, you want to have an amber ale, a stout, an IPA, a pale ale, that's fine. But being able to nudge people one way or the other and find out that the world of beer is so much bigger. I can make a beer back here that I'm just super proud of. And it's just my favorite beer that I've ever made. Mm -hmm. And I put it on out there and like, it's about translating what I want to do into what people want to drink, which isn't even all my job. Yeah. Our staff in the front, being able to explain to people, oh, you like Amber Ales. Well, you're going to love an ESB. What's your favorite beer that you absolutely love to make? I love to make crispy boys. Crispy. I mean, this is very crisp. And it's so refreshing. I call it dad hat. Dad, dad hat. hat. Um, because 
it's a dad hat kind of beer. Oh yeah. yeah. I've wanted to make an adjunct lager for years now. This is the first beer that we've ever made with corn in it. Really? Why is that? I wasn't always the head brewer, so I didn't always make all the decisions. And now I am, you know, we didn't make anything with smoke either. There was a number of stylistic choices that I wasn't able to make until now. So I brewed something with corn. There you go. That's so good. Um, you're tried and true Bud Light drinkers, your Miller Light people, you know, do you try to make stuff that will appeal to that audience or do you just kind of make what you want? And sometimes it's just more appealing to those type of people. I love appealing to people who want to drink beer and want to drink my beer. And I look at it from a perspective of when somebody comes in here and they say, I'm, I'm a Bud Light drinker. Of course, I'm going to direct them toward a German Pilsner, but at the same time, it's not what they're asking for. Yeah. You know, they'll be able to drink one of those and it's like, well, this is a lot more filling than what I'm used to and what I'm, I'm going for. But this, it's like, this is what they were. And anytime somebody comes in here and they're looking for something that they can't find, I want to stretch people's imagination a little bit, but also I want to give them something that they want. You're leaving money on the table if you don't have, there's nothing there they want. Yeah. Speaking of getting what you want, if you haven't checked out the beer selection at Cellar 55 down in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina, you might be leaving money on the table too. They're always bringing in new beers for you to taste, explore, and enjoy, and you can even pick up a pack of our collaboration with Little Brother Brewing, Fool's Journey, while supplies last. If beer's not your thing, they have a whole wall of wine ready for you to sample or grab a glass all at the press of a button. So get what you want today down at Cellar 55 and tell Bill Chuck Mountain sent you. Being a brewer is a great icebreaker at parties. My wife used to work at a law firm. And so, you know, Thanksgiving or holiday parties. Oh, what do you do? I'm a brewer. And it's just sort of endlessly fascinating. It's one of the reasons I got into it, of course. But as time goes by, somebody will ask, well, what's that like? About 90% of it is being a janitor. There's plenty of people who have entered the industry and exited the industry because 90% of your time being a janitor is not super sexy. (laughs) You know, the the other 10% is the toss up between being a mad scientist or a chef or, you know, whatever you want to focus on. But the rest of the 90% is is janitorial work. Hope you like stainless. Yeah. There it is. Lots of stainless. (laughs) But like the chemicals you use, are they all super dangerous or? You need a basic cleanser, something that removes organic soils, and you need an acidic cleanser, and then you need a sanitizer. In beer terms, when you open up a tank that has had fermentation happen in it, you have a whole bunch of stuff. There's proteins, there's bits of hops. If you dry hopped, those are the organic soils. Right. Those are the, the things that got burned in your skillet when you made eggs or whatever. And then there's the inorganic soils that are sort of mineral deposits. So you need to remove both of those things. The basic cleanser is not going to remove the minerals and the acidic cleanser is not going to remove the organic soils. I used to do tours at a brewery. And when we got to the chemical station, I said, all right, so if you want to get rid of a chicken wing, put it in this first and that dissolves all the soft parts. And then you put it in this one that gets rid of the bones. That's an easy way of describing it. And then you need another thing to sanitize it and make sure that everything on the inside is, is just perfectly clean. So the yeast doesn't have to compete with microbes. Maybe that's why everyone, like people are skeptical about talking about chemicals a lot of the time. 
But I think it's what you were just saying, like you could dissolve this part and then this part, and then use this one to make sure that no one even knew anything was there. Right. (laughs) What chemicals do is they remove the elbow grease equation because there's all kinds of nooks and crannies on the inside of a a vessel. Mm -hmm. And you basically have a sprinkler head inside. And uh, this is real fascinating stuff talking about cleaning in place. (laughs) But, you know, it's another triangle. You have time and temperature and concentration. So if I put super hot water in the tank and I put a ton of chemical, I only have to run it for about two minutes. But I don't want to put so much chemical in there that it becomes a hazard to everyone in the brewery. So I shift that over. Okay, I'm going to put hot water in. I'm going to put less chemical, but I'm going to run it for a longer period of time. It's a dishwasher. You're running cycles in a dishwasher with chemicals that, you know, are, for instance, sodium hydroxide is the basic cleaner. You can use low concentrations of sodium hydroxide when you're boiling pretzels. Chemicals sound scary. Mm-hmm. They're all around us. Dihydrogen monoxide sounds really scary until you realize that's H2O. It's yeah. water. <laughs> the other things, you know, it's, it, you're not dealing with concentrations that are like, oh, this is going to eat through my hand in three seconds. You know, this isn't like a Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever. Yeah. You're putting fairly low concentrations. Always wear safety equipment, wear gloves when you're dealing with these things. What kind of acid do you use? So the acid that we use for the acid cycle is a phosphoric and nitric blend. And then our no-rinse sanitizer is called parasitic acid. It's what they use to like sanitize eggs. One of the neat things about working in a brewery is that in every stage of beer fermentation, it's a buffer. I get acid on my skin. I rinse it with beer. I get caustic on my skin. I rinse it with beer and it buffers it. You know, that's not an actual safety SOP that yeah. I employ here, <laughs> but it's available. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm surrounded by buffers. So you were talking about styles earlier. Yeah. And you said it was a rabbit hole we could go down. It's, it, yeah. How many different styles have you brewed that you like to brew? That I like to brew? Are they the ones you don't like to brew? So styles that I don't particularly care to brew. There's ingredients that are more challenging than others. Anything without a husk, corn, wheat, rye. Rye is like you dump 80 pounds of gum in your louder ton, right? There's ways around that. There's rice hulls. There's things that you can use. There's a style called a Roggen beer. It's just rye beer in German. Think of like a Hefeweizen, but rye. So it's spicier. It's darker, but it's like 50% rye in your mash tun. it's just like, all right, cool. I'm going to strain oatmeal. Don't want to. The juice isn't worth the squeeze on that one. Yeah. Adjuncts are the things that are sort of challenging to deal with technically. Other than that, I don't think there's really any sort of style. I like cooking and I like cooking everything. I'm so that's partly personality. I think there's a dearth of information about historical beer styles now. That, you know, people are continuously digging into history of what beer looked like, what beer tasted like. And it's like, whoa, you can ferment at 95 degrees, which is wild. Uh, It it actually is wild. This was fermented with a strain of Scandinavian kvike yeast, and it fermented about 93 degrees. Did that speed up the fermentation then too? So it's just like quick. 
So just to give you perspective, a logger like this or a pilsner typically takes about a month and a half from grain to glass. This was brewed 13 days ago. Well, Dang. Wow. Dang. Really? So if you had to come up with a name for this style of beer, it would be a pseudo lager because lager, like guard and beer to guard means to lay down, to store, to put away for keeping because it works very slowly because it, it goes at cool temperatures. This was not put away for a long time at cool temperatures. This was raging at the nineties for about a week and then it was done. Hence pseudo lager. It's not a true lager. Hey, I can't say fast of a sod. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, in the glass the same. It's also why I named it dad hat, because if I put like Scandinavian pseudo lager out there, no one would drink it. Oh, I love dad hats. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's fermenting at like 90 some degrees. How do you stop that fermentation process? How do you cool it back down? Oh, you don't. Fermentation is like you have a herd of cows. That's the yeast. You have a pasture and depending on the kind of cows. This metaphor is just this is great. a little strained. This is, this is going to be the best. You have different breeds of cows, just like you have different strains of yeast. Now, some cows, like Belgian cows, Cezanne cows, lager cows or something like that, they want to eat every last blade of grass in that pasture. And then there's English cows, or there's certain strains of French cows or whatever, and they are kind of lazy. They eat their fill, and then they leave some of the grass in the field, right? So... That's where you pick the strain of yeast that you want. You design everything out from the start. All right, I want to brew this style of beer that requires these kind of grains, these kind of hops, this kind of yeast, this kind of water. Water chemistry is might as well be a black box to me. I don't understand half of it. So you choose your breed of cow for how much of the sugar or the grass. And then you don't stop it from eating. You let it eat till it's full. I'm hitting on like three of the 15 variables that go into how dry a beer gets. But the most important one for this discussion is the yeast. Some yeast conks out with 15% of the sugar left. Some like a Saison strain, it'll just eat every last piece of sugar in there. It'll just be dry as bone. All depends on what you're going for at the outset. Does fermentation process, does that add a little bit of heat into? Basically, I mean, yeast produce CO2 that causes bubbles to go up and then they just ride the current. It creates its own heat. Almost all the yeast will create enough heat to heat up into like the high 70s. But you don't want them to do that because then you get other compounds that you don't want in your beer. For example, is that where you get like diacetyl and stuff like that? Or all beer, all yeast produces diacetyl as a byproduct of fermentation, but then it also cleans it up. So typically, it's a sign of young beer. Another off flavor that can come from, say, green beer or young beer, it's called acetaldehyde, which tastes like green apple. We've heard about like that one. Green apple Jolly Rancher almost. Yeah. And those are the two young beer sort of off flavors. Say you want to make a high ABV beer. I know you can just put a ton of malt in there, mm -hmm. right? But do people add sugar? Absolutely. Depending on what kind of sugar you want to add, table sugar just straight sucrose, you can add that to dry something out. Normally our Belgian blonde, which is not on right now, I add about 25 pounds of just straight table sugar. And what that does, it just ferments completely cleanly out. There's no flavor contribution. It's just straight alcohol. If you add too much, then your beer is just super dry. There's no malt backbone to this at all. And it's not very enjoyable. 
so the seltzer game has been popping off the past couple of years. Like everybody's doing seltzers. Y'all have seltzers here. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you had brewed before? Or like, was that a difficult thing to do? So seltzer is not something that I brewed before. And it's challenging in different ways because it's just a sugar wash. Domino sugar straight in a bunch of water. And then I have to add some like yeast nutrient because there's not many nutrients and just straight sucrose. The challenge with that is finding a yeast that will, you know, tear through that sugar and not leave yeast character behind. There's a lot of clean yeasts that you don't get much yeast flavor contribution in like a Sierra Nevada pale ale, for example. But if you just put that in a tank full of water and sugar and some yeast nutrient, then like there's no other flavors at the end of it. The challenge with brewing seltzer is fermenting it and not having any fermentation character left behind. There's no hops. There's yeah. no malts. Yeah, there's no just like, sugar water. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know where the seltzer wave is it cresting. I don't know where it's at, but if I had a least favorite style to brew, it'd probably be seltzer. <laughs> yeah. Because there's skill involved in fermenting it, but there's no art to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a soulless. <laughs> is that um, a faster process? It can be if you do it right. Honestly, the, the longest part of that, and I'm just speaking from personal experience, other people have surely cracked the code by now. Yeah. Is scrubbing all of the yeast character from it, you know, making sure that there's like zero yeast in suspension, making sure it's probably easier to just get water and just add vodka to it. Yeah. <laughs> because then it's carbonate it. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys also just started doing the cocktails on draft. And yeah. that that's not you brewing that, right? Or no. No, that's a highly technical process of dumping handles. It. And this is approved by the state. It's just dumping mixers and handles in a keg. So are these tanks hooked up to your taps as well? They're not. No, we keg everything. Some breweries use serving tanks, which are basically just bright tanks hooked up to taps. Yeah. You know, they'll run a line through the wall. It wouldn't take very much for me to make these serving tanks. It's literally just tubing. No, we have, uh, you can look inside the cooler as well. That's the cold box. That's the money box, right? <laughs> there you go. That's where all the money lives. Yeah. That is a bonded storage facility. So as soon as that goes through that door is when I tax it. Okay. There's a fun tidbit of extremely boring brewery business. When you run a tap room, and all of your sales are like through your tap room. We don't distribute. Yeah. We're not in stores. You have to excise tax is a tax on production. So we produce it and then we get taxed by the gallon. Basically, when we rack it into kegs and then we wheel it through that door, that is that's when it gets taxed. I'm I became a brewer, so I could, I didn't have to become an accountant. And then as it turns out, you have to be kind of an accountant when you get to a certain level. <laughs> if I talk to myself five years ago, I'm where I wanted to be then. And now it's, it's more admin, you know, it's just maturing in in your job. What is like a big goal you have in the beer world? So big goal, I think goals shift over time. My goals five years ago would not be the same as they are now. Honestly, in five years, I don't mean physically at a different place, but I hope I'm in a different place in five years. This is going to be really highbrow. But I thought of, you ask somebody else, what's your philosophy as a brewer? 
And I, I thought, what is my philosophy as a brewer? And there's one answer, which is never believe anybody who says they have a consistent philosophy as a brewer. And then the other <laughs> one is like this Walt Whitman quote that we all learned in high school where he says, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And as I've studied under, mentored under, you know, head brewers, there's a lot of big personalities, but a lot of them are, you know, somewhat dogmatic in certain ways. And the brewers that I respect the most, they change over time. I think that's just people in general. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to stay in, in one place. This sort of goes back to the styles thing. When I was in brewing school, we were tasked with a research paper. At that point in my career, I was very dogmatic. Like, I know everything. I know, you know, what this style should taste like. And this is when New England IPAs were just exploding everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And I was of the mind, much like a lot of old school brewers at the time, that, you know, this is BS. It's just an IPA. It was, the, the bar was extremely low, as it will be for new styles. But I thought, I'm going to write my research paper on how terrible this style is. It's not a style. So, you know, I'm, I'm just researching and, and reading all this stuff. And I think it was the brewer who came up with Hetty Topper, who's sort of like the OG of hazy IPAs. I was expecting, you know, some, some sort of like impassioned, you know, argument for like why this is a new style. And he's just like, I was watching the Olympics and eating a salad. And I was like, I want to make a beer that tastes like weed. And that was it. That's it. Have you guys ever heard of, and you think you have, but you haven't, Michael Jackson, the beer guy? No. So I think it was the BBC back in the 80s. There was this guy named Michael Jackson, and he kind of looks like you. Pointing at Jeff, yeah, right? Point Shorter at hair, but still like 70s. Yeah. He worked for the BBC, and he just traveled around Europe, and he tasted beer styles. And this was the first anybody had heard what is a beer to guard? What is a Saison? What is a Czech Pilsner versus a German Pilsner? He basically cataloged and differentiated all of these styles on a TV program called The Beer Hunter. You can still find it on YouTube. It's great. He did a huge service to, you know, this was right as Ken Grossman with Sierra Nevada and some of the guys who were in the Navy and traveled around and came back to Oregon or something and decided to make a brewery or something. This was the beginning of the, the craft revolution in the States. And he did so much to popularize different beer styles. And I don't think it was his intent, but people sort of like cemented the idea of he went and he tried a Saison in France. And thus that Saison that he tried that's what saisons should taste like. Therefore, like we're going to judge all of them after that, that one, yeah. taste like that. I don't know anything about playing music, but it seems like it's probably like, what genre are you? Go. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That, we can never that's tell. Actually, actually, we've struggled with. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's just sort of a natural human inclination to like put something in a box so you can understand it. Well, this goes back to the well. I like amber ales. I tried an amber ale that I liked one time. So now I drink amber ales. And I fear change. So I'm not going to try that ESP because I don't know what it is. When in fact, I might really enjoy it because it's amber. It's an ale. It's just unfamiliar terminology. He cataloged all these styles and then people kind of took that and to great purpose, you're rediscovering historical style, northern English brown ale versus a southern English brown ale versus a beer de garde versus a 
you know, a check pills versus all of these things and new styles were born. And then at a certain point, this is sort of, I don't know, this is, this was my epiphany, I guess. I'm trying to write this paper saying that New England IPA is a BS style. And it's just like, man, they're all made up. Yeah. yeah everything's yeah, made up, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, let's put this in a bucket and see what happens. Right. <laughs> if you've heard our other episodes, this is when you will definitely know. What advice would you have for people that are getting into brewing or want to become like a commercial brewer? If you're passionate about beer, like someone who works in the restaurant industry is passionate about food. The comparison has always been evident to me because I've worked in commercial kitchens. I've worked in breweries. The passion is what ultimately sustains you. Obviously there's paychecks, which are usually not great, especially starting out. And I'm not to 40 yet, but I'm getting to 40 and I am not able to do the same things that I was when I got into brewing. Work out. The weight of an empty keg is like 30 pounds. Just do 30 pound curls in your free time. You're, you're not going to regret it. Yeah. Just go in clear eyed with the fact that it's a lot of work and that 10% of being able to let your creativity flow through your work or being able to be the mad scientist or play with things that doesn't come at the start that comes later on down the road, but that has to be worth it to you at the get go to sort of progress. That's sort of the light in the tunnel that, you know, now my job is 85% janitor and 5% admin that crushes my soul for like two or three days a month, but it's worth it. Be flexible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was about ready to pull my remaining hair out 15 minutes before you guys got here. Cause I just discovered the issue and this entire place runs on carbon dioxide. Yeah. Roll with it and just be the yeast and ride the current right? and leave. <laughs> if you're so able leave work at work, which especially when you're in the business of making alcohol is incredibly important. If you have to, you know, do some paperwork on your laptop and get home. That's not really what I'm talking about. It's like I make an intoxicant mm -hmm. that gets lots of people in trouble, generally speaking, yeah. you know, the industry. And I'm in a position to abuse that more than most. Mm -hmm. And so when I say leave work at work, you know, whether you're single, whether you have a family, whatever, just be cognizant and make a plan for before the problem. Yeah. Out in Nashville, I was a bartender and in Tennessee, you can drink behind a bar. Uh, it's like not frowned upon. It's not against the law. Yeah. And then I moved here and they're like, can't drink behind the bar. If they come in and they start breathalyzing anybody and you got any alcohol in your breath fired. Mm -hmm. But I like that aspect of bartending here because you right. get ripped up hard behind the bar and then you go out afterwards and keep going. And like, I definitely developed a problem, you know, it's more easy. Yeah. It's easier to do that. It's a fantastically fun industry to be a part of, but like everything, there's a trade-off. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. If you're getting into the industry, find your niche. I have friends that started out with me in the cellar at Natty's or on the platform. And they are far better salesmen for breweries than they were brewers. Not that they were bad brewers, but like they're people, people. Mm -hmm. I'm not a people person. You're I can come back person. here. You're a people person. The, I'm using up my, my social <laughs> tank of gas right now. I'm not going <laughs> to speak to my wife for a week. Oh, dang. <laughs> I'll tell her we're sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just going to be silent. Uh, I'm going to come in here tomorrow with headphones. No, but 
I think there's some people who have sort of a social battery. Mm. Some people charge it up being social and some people deplete it. I'm the latter. You guys are fantastic. It's nothing against interacting. It's just, that's how I am. Yeah. You know, when I come in here and I have to say three words to the seller person and then I just do my work, it's great. I'm not a salesman. And there's other people who coming in here and just saying three words to somebody and then just going up on the platform would be torture for them. So that's why they're on the road and they're doing a bang up job of selling beer. The industry is bigger than just this room. There's salesmen, front of house people. Yeah, there's, it's a big industry. And then there's peripheral industries. Our rep for our main brewing supplies, he is formerly a brewer. and He just decided to transition into being a rep. It's a big industry. Manage your expectations. What you think you want to do might not be what you want to do. And nine times out of 10, uh, being a janitor is not like that would be not people's what you dream. <laughs> yeah. It is some people's great. And that's where the passion sustains you. Well, that's all we have for this week's episode of Bruise Rock. We hope you enjoyed learning about the wild world of brewing with Jordan Miller from Joymongers. We certainly did. And if you're looking to impress your friends at your next holiday party, just take up craft brewing. Trust us, it's a conversation starter. And remember, when it comes to brewing, there are no rules. As Jordan said, it's all made up anyways. So don't be afraid to try new things and explore different styles. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, keep sipping and keep rocking.